0: Of a unique time on earth. Israel would be returned to her land, the church would turn to false doctrines, technology would increase, and wickedness and immorality would run rampant. The time spoken of so long ago has come. Join Charlie Garrett as he breaks down these events for us as they unfold each week. It's 12 May, it's Sunday, it's time for the prophecy update of the week. And I have a bandana on today from Cynthia Barker. She's in Brisbane, Australia. She sent it all the way from there. But guess what? She bought it when she was in South Africa. So this thing's been almost all the way around the world. And so I want to thank her very much for that. It says Jesus Freak and all kinds of other stuff on here. So there you go with that. And she got that right because I am definitely a Jesus Freak. And I'm, I love Jesus and I'm a freak. So there you go. Um, <laughs> And let's see here. Uh, I have to tell you all, I might as well say this, during the Prophecy Update, that next week we will have a different type of update. Like today, we're having a different type of update. But uh, next week we'll, we will have a guest, somebody I talk about quite often. He's going to be down in Naples for a, he's a lawyer. Ta-da. Anyway, he's going to be down there for a conference, and he is taking his Sunday to come up and share with us at the Superior Word. And so his name is John Haller. He has his own prophecy update up in Ohio. He's a really wonderful soul, and so we want to welcome him. I was not going to say anything unless he posted something first, because I'm not going to embarrass somebody if he couldn't make it, but he posted it, and so I can now freely say this, and if he doesn't come for any reason, that'll be on his head and not on mine. But until then, I thought I will just uh, wait. And I did see a post this week, and so I said, okay, I'll announce it to all of you. So John Holler will be here, and I hope you'll Uh, welcome him greatly. And uh, as I said, our Prophecy Update today is going to be a little bit of a different format. And the reason why is because we had a Prophecy Update last week while I was gone. And I did not want to have an unprepared or just a real short one because of the few articles I could fit in this week. And so before leaving, I actually typed up something that is relevant to what we are going through in the church Year after year after year, and it's a synopsis of the eight feasts of the Lord. And the reason why I'm doing this, especially now, it not only because I was gone for a while, but it's also because we're in the middle of two of the feasts of the Lord. We just went through the feast of first fruits, and then from there you're going to count a certain number of days, which we'll talk about, and you get to the feast of anybody. Pentecost, okay, and so yes, you all got that right. That the, the sound went down when I was saying that, so the audience, everybody here, responded correctly. Um, anyway, yes, the feast of Pentecost is coming. So we're going to talk about these eight feasts of the Lord in abbreviated format. And what I would suggest is, if this interests you, if you say, "Hey, I didn't know that," or that's something that I find really interesting. I would encourage you, and I'm talking to the people online, not the people here that have heard these, is to go back and watch the Feasts of the Lord because they are so filled with information about Christ that what I'm going to give you is only just a very short synopsis. We have eight Feasts of the Lord, and we also have Leviticus 16, which details very minutely one of those Feasts of the Lord as well. And you have to watch those three sermons from Leviticus 16. plus the Feasts of the Lord sermons from Leviticus 23 to really understand what's going on. But I hope that you will enjoy this because it is relevant to the world in which we live in a very special way, as I'll say in just a minute. So, this is the eight Feasts of the Lord. And there are varying views on these feasts. But in a quick categorical outline, we can identify a few major ones. The first is that these are feasts for Israel. Some even call them the feasts of Israel, okay? Or other people will call them Jewish feasts. If you type any of these into your search bar, it will come up immediately. These names are wrong from the outset, as will be explained. But simply stated, Scripture calls them, can anybody tell me what Scripture calls them? I've said it eight times already. Feasts of the Lord, that's correct. Scripture never, ever calls them feasts of Israel Israel or Jewish feasts, and neither are we two. If you hear someone use one of those terms or if you see it on the title of their YouTube video, you can ignore the rest of what they will say then because they have begun their analysis on a faulty premise and that will carry all the way through their analysis of it. It is the feasts of the Lord and nothing else. A second view on these is that these feasts are divided up into spring feasts which we're in right now And fall feasts and that these divisions are then given in relation to Christ's two advents in other words he fulfilled the first four feasts in his first advent and he will fulfill the last three in his second advent this is problematic for several reasons 1st there they're actually eight feasts of the Lord not seven the first is a weekly feast which goes throughout the year and the other are seven annual feasts of the Lord secondly He fulfilled all of them, not half of them, in his first advent. And so I would say that this makes that view rather problematic. Another view is that the spring feasts are fulfilled in his first coming and the fall feasts are too, but they have a future application in his second advent which pertains to the nation of Israel alone. This is problematic because it then makes these by default feasts of Israel, which is something that those who hold to this view explicitly state. They equivocate on the naming of the feasts in order to justify this unjustifiable stand. What is true and correct is that all eight feasts are feasts of the Lord, and they are all fulfilled in the work of Christ the Lord in his first advent. They are a part of the law of Moses, a law which is explicitly stated to be fulfilled by Christ in the epistles, meaning entirely. And not only is the law fulfilled, it is one, obsolete. That's Hebrews 8, verse 13. Two, it is annulled. That is Hebrews 7, 18. Three, it is taken away. That is Hebrews 10, verse 9. And four, it is nailed to the cross. That is Colossians 2, 14. The law of Moses is done. It is true that Israel is given seven more years under the law to accomplish certain things, according to Daniel 9. But these things are in relation to Christ's finished work of the law, not in acceptable observance of a now obsolete law. To say that Christ has yet to fulfill these three fall feasts is to say that Christ did not fulfill the law. If Christ did not fulfill the law then Christ is not the end of the law for all who believe. If the law is not fulfilled, then it is still in effect for all people. When it says in Romans that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, we can be assured that that is in error because the law brings wrath and the law brings condemnation. If Christ didn't fulfill the law, he is not the Messiah. We are not in Christ because we have put our hope in someone who is not Christ and the law is in its entirety still binding on us today in other words to say that these feasts are not fulfilled is not merely bad doctrine it is heresy this in and of itself is sufficient to know that the feasts of the Lord all eight of them are fulfilled but Paul goes further and explains that not only did these feasts anticipate the Lord and his work they actually accomplished nothing In and of themselves. In Colossians chapter 2, he says this So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Paul's words signify the following one, food and drink. These are dietary laws of Israel, they are fulfilled in Christ because they were only shadows of that which he would accomplish. To understand this, meaning every single permitted and forbidden animal or type of animal under the law of Moses, you can watch our Leviticus 11 sermons on the Superior Word channel. Every detail of them pointed to a reality in Christ. They were but shadows of this. And I'd like to tell you right now before I go on concerning the food and drink that my friend Sergio, who is in Israel, is currently going through the Bible in the book of Leviticus. He's read it many times, but he's in the book of Leviticus. And so he decided, I'm going to follow along in the book of Leviticus with Charlie's sermons, line by line. We go line by line, word by word in every sermon. And he got to Leviticus 11 a couple days ago and he emailed me and he, this is a Jew who has known this law all of his life and he has read the Bible many times. He said, I am utterly astonished at what that says. He could not believe it. He was floored. So I would implore you also to watch the Leviticus 11 sermons if you have not seen them. Understand that the dietary laws of Israel are annulled in Christ but they all pointed to a reality in Christ including every type of animal, Every single edict in that passage points to something true about Christ or his church in the New Testament. Two is festivals. This is from Colossians 2:16 and 17, the festival. The word festival is referring to the annual feast days of the Lord. They are fulfilled in Christ because they were only shadows of that which he would accomplish, meaning all of the annual and weekly feasts of the Lord. Three, he mentioned new moons this was a monthly appointment for Israel these look to the work of Christ and they are now fulfilled in Christ because they were only shadows of that which he would accomplish they were a shadowy picture of his coming and fourth he mentioned Sabbaths Paul's use of this word is speaking of the weekly Sabbath of Israel and any special Sabbaths which were mandated for Israel such as the day of atonement being a Sabbath of solemn rest they are fulfilled in Christ because they were only shadows of that which he would accomplish when Paul says that they are a shadow of things to come but the substance is of Christ he means that they had no actual value other than to anticipate the coming of Christ and his fulfillment of the pictures that they made in Christ's fulfillment of them they are now as all of the law of Moses is obsolete When one receives Christ and his fulfillment of them, they get the reality which Israel only looked forward to. And so to understand this, we will now go through each of the eight feasts of the Lord directly from Leviticus chapter 23, starting with number one, the Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Sheshet yamim tease melakha. Six days you shall do work. These words are directive in nature. Therefore, the week is divided into two sections, active work and active cessation from work. Man is not to be idle when he should be working, and man is not to be working when he should be at rest. What is curious is that one person is being addressed. The verb is second person Singular. This is odd, because at the end of the verse that I just read you, the verb will be plural. The work week in Israel is based on a seven-day calendar, beginning on Sunday and ending on Saturday, just as it is in the U.S. today. Unlike our time schedule, though, each day begins at evening and goes through until the next evening. Thus, Sunday, the first day of the week, begins at evening, literally sundown, on Saturday and it goes through until sundown the next day things that needed to be done were to be done before the Sabbath so that no work was to be done on the Sabbath this however does not mean that one must work every day if so for example it would violate the other mandated feasts of the Lord rather what should be done was to be done but not on a Sabbath Next, it says Shabbat Shabbaton, or resting day of solemn rest. This specific term, Shabbat Shabbaton, is used only six times in Scripture. Four times it speaks of the weekly Sabbath, once for the Day of Atonement, and once concerning the seventh year of Sabbath rest. These are the Sabbaths that Paul refers to in the book of Colossians, which I cited a moment ago. The people were to rest, and they were to contemplate God and His works On their behalf concerning this term Sabbath or Shabbat it first must be understood that this is referring to a Saturday biblically there is no such thing as a Sunday Sabbath to say today is the Sabbath only means today is Saturday and it is my day of rest there is no transfer of a Sabbath to Sunday to be found in Scripture that is a fallacy known as a category mistake Understanding this, the word Shabbat implies rest and cessation from labor. This cessation of labor for Israel merely looks forward to a different type of rest. It was a foretaste of the blessed eternal rest, which was lost by man in the Garden of Eden, but which was promised to be restored. Man was created outside of the Garden of Eden, and he was rested in the Garden to worship and to serve his God. That was lost. Next it says, "Mikra Kodesh, Convocation Holy. The Lord is calling his people, Israel, to observe this day as a holy calling. Unlike the next seven feasts, this is the only weekly one, and thus it is set apart from the others. However, this in no way means that it is not a feast of the Lord. What it does mean, however, is that no other feast was to take precedence over it. Some of the feasts lasted a full week, and at times others may have lined up with the Saturday Sabbath. In such cases, the Sabbath requirements were not to be set aside. Instead, the Sabbath was to be kept to the Lord, despite whatever else occurred. It then says, "Kao melaka lo taasu, all work no you shall do." The verb is second person plural. No work was to be conducted on a Sabbath day. There is no exemption from this the words six days you shall work being singular look to the work of Jesus Christ you alone shall do the work in the second half it is second person plural all work all you all plural shall do you all my people shall rest in him the picture is complete in Christ he does the work and as Hebrews 4 verse 3 says for we who have believed do enter that rest. The shadow finds its substance in Jesus Christ, feast fulfilled. Our second feast is Passover. On the 14th day of the first month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Nobody in their right mind disputes Christ's fulfillment of this feast. He died on the Passover according to Scripture. It is documented in all four Gospels. To understand the timeline of his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, all you need to do is compare the term Preparation Day, which is found in all four Gospels. People have really botched this up over the years, claiming that Christ was crucified on a Thursday, or even a Wednesday. This always, always comes from a misinterpretation of a couple of verses. However, the timeline is exceedingly clear. Just follow the term Preparation Day, and you will be in the sweet spot. So let's do it now. From Matthew 27, verse 62, it says the next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. This was the day after the crucifixion. Matthew says it is the day after preparation day. After this is then recorded the day after the Sabbath, which is Matthew 28, verse 1, the first day of the week, meaning Sunday. Mark 15, 42 says it was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So, as evening approached, this is the day of the crucifixion. Mark says it was preparation day. Mark 14 ends on the night of Christ's time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 15, 1 then identifies that it is immediately in the morning, meaning preparation day. Luke 23, verse 54 says it was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. This is the day of the crucifixion. Luke says it was preparation day. Luke 23, 56 then says that they rested on the Sabbath and then he was raised on the day after the Sabbath. Sunday, the Lord's day, the first day of the week. That is found in Luke 24, verse 1. And John 19, 14 says now it was preparation day of the Passover. This is the day of the crucifixion. John says it was preparation day. This definitively, And without any chance of coming to any other conclusion, if you simply do the study, identifies the day as Friday, followed by the Saturday Sabbath. Now, I understand that people want to cling to a Thursday and a Wednesday crucifixion. They can mishandle scripture all they want. They can teach things that are incorrect, but it does not line up with scripture. I did this. I laid it out, and I called my friend Sergio in Israel a day ago, and I said, Sergio, I want to do a chart so that people can see this laid out. And I don't know how to do charts. I'm not very tech savvy as all of you know. And so he sat down and I started telling him what to put on that chart. And he said, this is ingenious. I've never seen it laid out like this before because nobody has ever taken Preparation Day, which is the only thing that's really recorded in all four Gospels so that you can identify this day. And once you've done it, you can come to no other conclusion than the Bible is either in error or Friday is the day of the crucifixion. And that is the way that it is. This is what the Bible actually teaches. The four Gospels are harmonious in this, and it is irrefutable. The rest of the Passion Week identifies this as well. I have a complete detail from Jesus taking the donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday all the way through the Passion Week. I have that in the computer. I'll send it to anybody that wants it. I'll send you this chart. Whatever you want, it's all free to the user. Send me an email. You'll get it, okay? I have it typed up. I have it on a video as well. I can send you the link on that. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul tells us of the fulfillment of the Feast of Passover. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us the shadow finds its substance in Jesus Christ feast fulfilled our third feast or the second annual feast is unleavened bread here it says and on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord seven days you must eat unleavened bread on the first day you shall have a holy convocation you shall do no customary work on it But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Please pay attention to what I just said, no customary work, because I'm going to address this in another part of our talk in a moment. The two holy convocations bracket the feast. One occurs on the first day of the feast and one on the seventh. They stand as representative of the entire period of the feast. This feast that Israel celebrated is only a picture of our time in Christ in this earthly life, from the day of our adoption until the time that we go home to God in glory, pictured by the passing through of the Red Sea in the Exodus account. In the words of verse 6, we are given a positive command, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. This is explicit. For seven days, unleavened bread was to be eaten. It doesn't say you may not eat bread with leaven for seven days. Instead, it says seven days you must eat unleavened bread. It is not a negative command, which means that they could abstain from any bread as long as they didn't partake in leavened bread. Instead, it is a positive command. They were to eat unleavened bread during the entire feast. This goes in picture to what is cited by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8. Let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ is the unleavened bread, a picture of his sinless perfection. As we are in Christ, we are to keep the feast, meaning conduct our lives in Christ as he did. The shadow finds its substance in Christ, feast fulfilled. Our fourth feast, or the third annual feast, is first fruits that's what we just went through with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel and say to them when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it and you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation's in all your dwellings. here the words, he shall wave the sheaf are given. The word translated as wave is nuf. It gives the sense of to quiver. Thus it means to vibrate up and down or to rock to and fro. To get the idea of what the priest does, the word means elsewhere to wave or to beckon or to sprinkle or to rub or to saw and so on. Each of these implies motion and vibrancy. It then says the day After the Sabbath, one of the greatest divisions of interpretation of this entire feast is answering the question, what Sabbath is being referred to here? The answer was a dividing line between the Sadducees and the Pharisees of the Second Temple times. The vast majority of commentators agree with the Pharisees and say it is referring not to the weekly Sabbath, but to the first day of the Holy Convocation, which follows immediately after the Passover. I told you to pay attention a moment ago. Here it is. In other words, the Passover began, as verse 5 states, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight. And so they say the next day, the first day of unleavened bread or the 15th day of the month, was a holy convocation where no regular work was to be done. Thus, the day after this supposed Sabbath would be the 16th. And it would be on this day that the offering was to be presented. This is incorrect for several reasons. One, The feast now being looked at began with its own introductory words in Leviticus 23. It said, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, There is thus no scriptural reason for tying the two feasts together in this way. Any such alignment would be incidental, not purposeful. And that is exactly what happened on the year that Christ was crucified. Because people will try to take this and say, It's a different Sabbath. There's two Sabbaths in the week. I've already told you that the Holy Convocation is not a Sabbath. It is never termed a Sabbath, and that is a false premise in order to justify what is unjustifiable. Two, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, as I just said, not a Sabbath, nor is it ever termed as such. It is a holy convocation. No work of any kind was to be conducted on a Sabbath. Does everybody understand that? That included cooking meals. However, the preparation of food, something not allowed on the Sabbath, was allowed on this day, according to Exodus 12, verse 16. It cannot be a Sabbath. Further, three, all yeast was to be removed from the house on this same day, another work which would not be authorized on a Sabbath. That means that on any other year, they would have to do this a day early. Four, If the day now in question was a weekly Sabbath following the holy convocation, which would occur every seventh year or so, then the people, if not priests, bringing this sheaf to the temple on that weekly Sabbath day would be a violation of the Sabbath, which is now being observed. But Leviticus 23, verse 3, the Sabbath law, which we've already read, was specifically placed first in the order of the feasts to show that no feast celebration was ever to interfere with the regular weekly Sabbath but this would have to be the case if the Sabbath referred to in this verse was the Holy Convocation referred to in the previous verse. The correct answer is that this is a weekly Sabbath which would fall into the time of the harvest season when the first grain became ripe whenever that occurred. As the Passover is during this season, it would more often than not occur on the day after whatever weekly Sabbath occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Understanding these things, we see the symbolism of the sheaf which was waved. Christ was dead. He was cut down, but he was brought back from the dead, having arisen, filled with vibrancy before the Lord. As there is but one sheaf, it signifies that Christ is the one and only representative of or means of future resurrection. He is the one and only mediator, the one and only example for emulation. As it is the day of the week after the weekly Sabbath, it means that Christ was resurrected on the first day of the week, meaning Sunday, just as Scripture details. And this is what Paul says of this feast. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. The shadow finds its substance in Christ. Feast fulfilled. Our fifth feast of the Lord is weeks or Pentecost. It's our fourth annual feast of the Lord. Here's what it says about that. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. There are only two times ever that leaven is... Presented before the Lord, this is one of them in Scripture. They are the first fruits to the Lord. Does anybody know what leaven pictures in the Bible? Sin. Sin. It is consistent throughout scripture, leaven, pictures, sin. Verse 18, and you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. I know there's all kinds of offerings we're not talking. About. If you want to know what they picture and how they detail Christ, go watch the sermons. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it, it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Verses 15 and 16 note that a period of seven weeks was to be counted off until, as the Hebrew says, HaShabbat HaShavit, or the Sabbath, the seventh. There is a definite article in front of Sabbath to ensure that the mistake is not made, that this is merely a period of weeks, but a period of weeks which ends on a Sabbath day. It is the day after this Sabbath that the attention is now being directed. Despite the name weeks, the feast is actually more commonly known from the Greek translation of the Old Testament of this verse. One was to count the seven weeks, but more exactingly, it was to be 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, on whatever day that Sabbath was. The Greek translation translates the word as 50 days or penteconta. In the New Testament, it is called pentecosti or pentecost. The feast is fulfilled in Christ, in the giving of the Spirit. There is a one-time fulfillment of this feast, but the effects of it, like all of the feasts, comes about at any time a believer places his trust in Jesus Christ. At that moment, they have their own Pentecost moment. Hopefully, everybody in this church and everybody listening has called on Jesus Christ and they have received the Holy Spirit. If so, you have had your Pentecost moment. In him, it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Please understand what that verse tells you, because people love to argue if you can lose your salvation or if you cannot lose your salvation. If you can lose your salvation, then Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 has absolutely no meaning at all, because it says there that when you believe, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is the highest seal anywhere in the universe. Nothing can be stronger. And then after that, it is called a guarantee, a guarantee, a guarantee. If you can lose your salvation, then God, one, made a mistake sealing you in the first place, and two, it was a really crummy guarantee. Please understand that this makes you a purchased possession to the praise of his glory, not ours. You cannot lose your salvation if you have verses that you believe justify that. They are out of context and you need to email me and I'll tell you where you're wrong because you cannot lose your salvation. And teachers that teach that falsity are saying that if you can lose your salvation at any time after being saved, then it was never of grace through faith ever because I have to do something to maintain it. Therefore, it is of works from beginning to end. It is not of Jesus Christ. It is of you. But That is not what the Bible teaches. It is by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works lest any man should boast. You cannot lose your salvation. Concerning the two loaves, here we go, which were presented with yeast. Remember that? They picture Jew and Gentile accepted by God despite their sin. Paul records a literal fulfillment of this in his epistles. Here's what he says. Greet my beloved Epineidus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. That's Romans 16, verse 5. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia. He just said Epineidus was. Why did he say one and then the other. The presentation of the two loaves is what those verses are speaking of. Epineadus was a Jew, Stephanus was a Gentile, and thus one gospel message. So much for hyper dispensationalism. There is one message to Jew and Gentile. The shadow finds its substance in Christ, feast fulfilled. Oh boy, we're coming into the last three feasts. Are we going to find a fulfillment of them? Or is Charlie just blowing smoke today? Our sixth feast of the Lord, which is the fifth annual feast of the Lord, is known as Yom Teruah. Some people call it, incorrectly, Rosh Hashanah, the first of the year. It wasn't the first of the year because it was a different calendar that was being used for the redemption calendar, not the civil calendar. It is Yom Teruah. We could call it the day of acclamation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. The seventh month was originally, you got to get this right to understand what's going on in the Bible. It was originally the first month of the calendar that was changed at the time of the Exodus. However, both calendars continued to be used in scripture. It's a bit of a confusing study, but for now, just remember that the month Adam was created. The first month is now in Leviticus 23, the seventh month. That's what happened when he changed the calendars. Although I do not like to go to extra biblical writings, I am going to take you to the words of Chabadba, which will help you understand what is going on here. There it says, the first day of creation on which God created existence, time, matter, darkness, and light was the 25th of Elul. Rosh Hashanah, on which we mark the beginning of your works, is actually the sixth day of creation on which the world attained the potential for the realization of its purpose with the creation of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. Rosh Hashanah is therefore the day from which the Jewish calendar begins to count the years of history. The first day of creation thus occurred on the 25th of Elul of what is termed one from creation. This is actually supported by a parallel found in an anagram of the first word in the Bible, which concerns creation, and the first day of the month of Tishri. They are both spelled with the same letters, but when rearranged, the letters reflect one or the other. Bereshit, or in the beginning, the first word of the Bible is simply rearranged into Aleph Be Tishri, or the first of Tishri. Knowing that Adam was created on this day, we can then see the fulfillment in Christ. He was born on this same day 4,000 years later. Now, how do we know that? First, because I did the sermon on it and you can go watch it and you can get all of the detail that you need. But it is because the Bible shows us this. To understand would take watching that entire sermon, which you need to do now, As a matter of fact, one of my friends emailed me just within the past month. He said, I finally watched that. I'm going through the Feast of the Lord. He said he was astonished at what he saw. But the fulfillment is explained by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says there, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, think of him being created on one Tishri became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit he was born on one Tishri however the spiritual is not first but the natural and afterward the spiritual the first man was of the earth made of dust the second man is the Lord from heaven as was the man of dust so also are those who are made of dust that's all of us we're all gonna die we're gonna corrupt we're gonna go back to the dust but And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. We are going to bear the image of Jesus Christ because of our faith in him. Not because we deserve it, not because we have kept it, but because he has given us his spirit and promised with a guarantee that we will stand in his presence. Yes, we will lose rewards when we fail him, but no, we will never lose our salvation and we will be like him. The blasts of the trumpet each year on this day were given in anticipation of the coming Messiah. When he arrived, they literally fulfilled this aspect of the feast without even realizing it. The shadow finds its substance in Christ. Feast fulfilled. Okay, we still have two. Can we find a fulfillment in them? The next one is the Day of Atonement. If you can't find the fulfillment of that in your salvation, you might as well just re- Jesus and be saved again because I got to tell you what that's what it's pointing to but here we go it's the day of atonement and the Lord spoke to Moses saying also the 10th day of the 7th month shall be the day of atonement it shall be a holy convocation for you you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord And you shall do no work on that same day for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord, your God, for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Again, to understand this feast and how it is fulfilled in Christ, you would have to watch, as I said earlier, all three of the Leviticus 16 sermons on the Day of Atonement, which are astonishing, and the one Leviticus 23 sermon that I did on it. The remarkable aspect, which I will share with you, is that there is a subtle, almost unrecognizable change in the Hebrew of these words. I have never seen anybody analyze this before, ever. It shall be a Sabbath to you, it says in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23, in both accounts. In Leviticus 16, it says, Shabbat shabbaton hi lachem. However, in Leviticus 23, it says, Shabbat shabbaton hu lachem. The word he or who in either form means the same thing. It means it. However, he in verse 1631 is tied to the feminine word sabbath. In verse 2332 it is tied to the masculine word Shabbaton or complete rest. The reason for the change is because in Leviticus 16 the focus is on the sabbath. In Leviticus 23 it is on the rest. The reason for the change from he to who is obvious from the context of Leviticus 23. The constant admonition during those instructions which I just read you is no work. God has given us an amazing insight into Christ and his work. First, he is our Sabbath rest. We rest in him positionally. But Christ is also the end of the law for all who believe, as Paul says in Romans. He has done the work. We find our rest in him actually. The focus goes from Christ, our place of rest, to Christ because of whom we rest. Paul explains the fulfillment of the day of atonement. He says in Romans chapter 3, but now. Propitiation by his blood, feast fulfilled through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word Paul uses, which the author of Hebrews later uses, is the same word used to describe the mercy seat, where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. You will only cheat yourself if you don't watch those sermons to fully understand this. But for now, each time that a person comes to Jesus Christ, they receive their Day of Atonement, fulfilled once and forever by Christ on the cross of Calvary. The shadow finds its substance In Jesus Christ, feast fulfilled. We have one more. Can we find a fulfillment of this final feast? It's the eighth feast of the Lord, the seventh annual feast. It is called Tabernacles. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burn offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of... Beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in Boos when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This feast, like that of unleavened bread, points to Christ's work as it is displayed in us. Unleavened bread followed Passover and it signified our life in Christ the process of sanctification That one from the day after the Passover and it lasted seven days until the passing through of the Red Sea It pictured our redemption in Christ Passover his sacrificial death and then our life of sanctification Hopefully hopefully you're being sanctified until we pass through death and the rapture that is unleavened bread and are then brought into the Lord's presence. This feast is parallel to that. It follows the other two feasts in the seventh month. The first was the day of acclamation or Yom Teruah, picturing Christ's birth, where he came to dwell among us. Then came the day of atonement, where he died among us, becoming our sacrifice for sin, our atonement of our sins. With our atonement behind us, we have a new life to live, pictured by Sukkot, or tabernacles. And so we need to understand that this feast is fulfilled for us in the work of Christ. This is made explicit in John 1, verse 14, where it says this from Young's literal translation of the Bible And the Word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of an only begotten of a Father, full of grace and truth. There, John uses the word skinao, or dwelling in a tent. It is from the same word as that of the Greek translation of the Old Testament for booths or tabernacles in Leviticus 23. In other words, Christ came, put on a tent of flesh, and became a man. What allows us to participate in this feast of tabernacles is that Christ first did so. The seven days of unleavened bread pictured us as unleavened before the Father, living out our lives purged of sin. The seven days of tabernacles pictures us living in temporary booths or tabernacles before the Father. Are you in your permanent dwelling, your permanent body? No, No, of course not. I was going to make a joke about me stinking, but I won't do that again. We're awaiting our permanent dwelling. It is the same time frame in both feasts. Our life after receiving Christ Jesus, the two feasts simply portray two different aspects of this. Both occurred on the 15th of the month, the time of the full moon. Our true life begins at the brightest moment in our life. Can anybody disagree with that? I came to Jesus and it was like the heavens had been torn open. Green was green for the first time in my life. I'd never seen a blue sky until the day. I met Christ that is represented by the brightly lit night which starts the new day as the moon begins to wane so our lives in Christ as mortals do as well but we are not to despair as we approach the darkness the first day is a holy convocation as is the eighth day the two holy convocations bracket the feast they stand as representative of the entire period of the feast Like unleavened bread, which is tied by calendar to the Passover, the feasts both last seven days, but with an additional day added, thus making eight. The last day for both are a new beginning. The significance of the sukkah, or tabernacle, is tied into our position in Christ. Go watch the sermon to get the details. He came and he tabernacled among us. Now for those who are in him, we are positionally new beings in Christ. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this: Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away; behold, all things have become new. Paul uses the same terminology four more times to show us that if we are in Christ, We will be like Christ, and thus we are to live as Christ lived. This is our time of dwelling in Sukkot, redeemed from spiritual Egypt, which is Passover. Our sins are atoned for, which is the Day of Atonement, and we are awaiting Oh man, I can't wait for the trumpet to to resound. We're waiting for our new beginning. The Jews use the term from this passage in gathering to say that it is representative of the regathering of Israel to the land today. That is wholly incorrect and it has nothing to do with that. This here is a feast of the Lord looking to his redemptive work in the church, be a Jew or Gentile. It is a spiritual harvest, not a physical regathering of Israel. It is the abundance of life in Christ terminating in our glorification which is being anticipated here. And we spend week after week after week watching prophecy updates that don't edify us at all instead of getting into scripture and understanding the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ. The shadow finds its substance in Christ, feast fulfilled. Now before I get done and give you my final comments on this. I'd like to urge everybody that is watching this Prophecy Update to watch our sermon today. Numbers 21 through 13, the waters of Meribah. Wonderful pictures, and it's something that so many people have misused and mishandled, just like they do with the Feast of the Lord and the other things that we talked about today. There is a picture in there, and it is not what you are thinking. So to sum up today, one, Hebrews 4.3, our Sabbath for we who have believed do enter that rest. Two, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Passover. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Three, read along. 1 Corinthians 5, 8, unleavened bread. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Four, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, first fruits. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 5, Ephesians 1, verse 13, and elsewhere, Pentecost. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 6, 1 Corinthians 15, 47, Yom Teruah, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And seven, Romans 3, 24 and 25, the day of atonement, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here it comes, whom God set forth as a propitiation By his blood. And the final feast, 8, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, tabernacles. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All eight feasts of the Lord are fulfilled by the Lord Jesus and are lived out in the one gospel for Jew and for Gentile. They are feasts of the Lord and they are fulfilled by the Lord. If you would like a written copy of this update, you can email me, and I will whip it out to you. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Feast of the Lord, which are fulfilled by our Lord. We are waiting for something new and glorious when you come for us. But until then, we will live out our lives in holiness because of what Christ did and because we are in Christ. And for anybody that has never taken time to consider these things and to call on Jesus Christ as Lord and to be saved by his precious shed blood. I would pray that today would be the day for them, that they would make the commitment. And for those that have made the commitment but are so bound in prophecy updates and goofy things that they miss the substance of Christ, may they have a hunger for knowing him more and more, Old Testament and new, the glory of the resurrected Christ, our Lord Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. And so, such is the world we live in. From Sarasota, Florida, to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, I'm Charlie Garrett. This is the superior word, and that is your prophecy update for the week. Amen.